It's the Maxwell Institute podcast. I'm Blair Hodges. Something miraculous happened in Denmark in 1849. Their first democratic constitution was ratified, and after nearly 1,000 years of state control over religious expression, the people were guaranteed religious freedom. No more would Danes automatically be Lutheran. Missionary-minded Christians from around the world flocked to Denmark to offer their views in this new religious marketplace. Thousands upon thousands of Danes joined the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In this episode, Dr. Julie K. Allen of Brigham Young University joins us to talk about these unusual converts. We're talking about her book, Danish But Not Lutheran, The Impact of Mormonism on Danish Cultural Identity, 1850 to 1920. Send questions and comments about this and other episodes to mipodcast at byu.edu. Gary Ricks provides our podcast review of the month. He writes, Every interview that I've listened to has been interesting, even when I thought beforehand that the subject matter would be of no interest to me. Thank you, Gary. I really appreciate that. We try to make every show engaging. Reviewing the show takes just a minute, but it makes a big difference. So does recommending us to a friend. Thanks for all you do to spread the word about the Maxwell Institute podcast. And now, here's Julie K. Allen on Danish Latter-day Saints. Julie Allen, welcome to the Maxwell Institute podcast today. Thanks, Blair. I'm happy to be here. So today we're talking about your book, Danish But Not Lutheran. And the history of Denmark in general is kind of a case study in what happens when a nation becomes secularized, especially when it comes to the separation of church and state. Denmark passed a new constitution in June of 1849, and it completely changed the relationship between Denmark and the Lutheran Church, which was the church of the state, right? So people today might be surprised to learn that some of the key figures in this circumstance were themselves religious believers. It's not a case where people said, we want to separate church and state because we don't like religion. It was quite different than that. Let's talk about one person in particular that you introduce us to in the book. D.G. Monrad. Sure. I think it's important to understand that it wasn't that it was the church of the state. The church was the state, and the state was the church, that according to the king's law of 1660, the religion of the king was the religion of the state. And so the church was just part of the state. And so the idea of separating it out and making it a separate entity was radical, but it was largely members of the church, leaders of the church, who wanted that to give the state, as we know here in America, some autonomy and some freedom to determine its own doctrine and policies. And because of the outsized role of the church, there were also lots of political figures in Denmark who were clergy. And so Monrad, Dietlio Gotthard Monrad is his name, he was one of many politicians and bishops whose roles crossed those lines frequently. And you see some of the complications that that results in, but also some of the possibilities. And so Monrad is a fascinating story. His father dies when he's quite young, and he is on his own for his education. And he comes to an education through reading about the American Revolution, the French Revolution, and really is inspired by these ideals at a time when Denmark is discovering democracy as a policy, a political opportunity. The state has been absolute, had an absolute monarchy since 1660. And the king is a benevolent monarch. People love him and trust him, but they have no say. How did he view the relationship at, at that time? So they're kind of negotiating what the nation would be. How did he view 
the relationship of church and state, you say it was basically the same thing. And how was he trying to shift away from that? Well, Monrad felt like the church had a different role to play, that it needed to be really more inclusive. And he wanted people to have the opportunity to exercise their beliefs. Um, He was also very much part of the Baptist crisis of 1842, when some Danes had become Baptists, converted by German Baptists who had been converted in turn by American Baptists. And it was illegal. And so the state really cracked down to save the children of these Baptists from their parents' heresy. They would take them away from their parents and forcibly baptize them into the Danish Lutheran Church. And Monrad felt like that was just a, a travesty. People have made these choices responsibly, and the state shouldn't be interfering in this way. And so he felt like it was important that people had the right to choose their own form of religious expression. So he was a member of the clergy. How was it safe for him to express dissent on issues like that, like infant baptism, for him to say, because he wasn't just saying it to the church, he was saying it to the church slash state of, hey, this is actually not a good idea. Right. And he was saying it through newspaper articles and in public meetings. And so he was very much a public figure at a time when people were going to jail for this. There was no freedom of the press or freedom of assembly. And so he was taking a very calculated risk that the benefit to the, the population at a, as a whole would be greater than the risk to him as an individual. And he was in pretty good company with other political reformers like Orla Lehmann, who was another major figure in getting the Constitution started. But he um, he was also in company with people that I discuss elsewhere in the book, like Peter Christian Kierkegaard, who also was asked to perform these baptisms of Baptist children and refused and had to explain himself to the king to explain why he wouldn't uphold this ruling by the primate of the Danish church. How do you think Monrad would define Danish national identity? Because as they're trying to reimagine what the politics will look like, nation building includes the identity of that nation. Like, who are these people? That's kind of how people would make a nation. How would Monrad characterize Danish national identity? I think Monrad was very much a thinker, and he looked at the Enlightenment philosophies as a way of giving people a chance to define themselves as individuals first. His colleague and fellow pastor, Nils Fredrik Selvan Grundtvig, was very much uh, in the folkloric mode, and he felt like a people was sort of an organic thing that emerged, and you're first and foremost a Dane, and then a Christian. But Monrad felt it was much more about you as an individual taking responsibility for your citizenship and that that's what made you a good member of this of the situation. He has a great quote that he wrote in April 1840 where he talks about the king of Denmark kind of as a Moses whose job is to lead people out of ignorance. Um, and he says that if the king is not acting, that your job is to promote that action, to spur him to action. And he quotes from sort of a Bible style and says, Verily I say that a people that does not even have the power to ask for freedom is unworthy of it. And so I think he felt like what made people Danish was this taking responsibility for their own agency and creating a state that was inclusive and democratic and empowering to people. And what makes it really interesting is the fact that Monrad is arguing for a separation between church and state, but he's using some religious arguments to do that, which some people today might find ironic. Well, that's one of the threads that goes through the book, is how many of the figures involved in this transition from a church and state that are inseparable to a church and state that are quite distinct are themselves religious, and they're not 
promoting this because they don't believe in religion. Even Kierkegaard, who gets kind of a bad rap among Christians today who haven't read his writings, apparently, he wanted this church to be separate so that people would be more religious. Because when it was part of the state, it downplayed the religion part of it and became just a function of the state. Pastors became officers of the state whose job was just as much collecting taxes and keeping roles for the draft as it was ensuring people's spiritual well-being. Yeah, and I think they also would talk about coercion as a problem. Like if someone's sort of forced to be in a church, how religious could that, how spiritual could that person ultimately be? Right. And that becomes one of Kierkegaard's issues. He talks about people, the path is narrow and the way is straight and you can't go through en masse, hand in hand, an entire nation, that it's an individual process. And when you're lumped into the complacency of, we'll just come to church and you'll be saved because you're Danish um, and because we're all Lutheran, then no one will be saved. So how did the Constitution settle the matter ultimately of, of church and state? What did they what did they land on? Because well, it didn't uh, it didn't appeal to everybody, even those who were appealing for a separation. Sure. They they ended up compromising, as one inevitably must, and not granting full freedom of religion, but granting people the right to exercise their beliefs, even when they differed from the religion of the people, which they called the people's church Volkekirchen. People had the right to exercise as long as it didn't impede public morality. And so it didn't give other churches the same status as the Lutheran church, but it opened the door for people to create those churches and attend them. Yeah, so it kind of became a safe place for—the Baptists were already there, but now it became safe for them to be Baptist. Correct, which is one of the great ironies that it's the Baptists who are the largest um, group of converts to Mormonism. So Danish and Lutheran, these were synonymous for hundreds of years or for over— Since the Reformation. Since since the Reformation, okay. And the new constitution changed that, so non-Lutheran religious groups are beginning to grow, and this is where Mormonism enters the scene. So talk a little bit about the first Mormon missionary experiences in Denmark and how that began. That's a great story. So the first Danish converts to Mormonism are two brothers, um, the Hansen brothers, and one is a sailor in Boston. And his brother hears about the church in Denmark and comes to Boston and is baptized there. And they make their way to Nauvoo, where they meet Joseph. So this is like in the 1840s. Mm -hmm, Early 1840s. And Joseph Smith encourages Peter Olsen Hansen to start translating the Book of Mormon into Danish, which he starts doing in the early 1840s. But after the martyrdom and the, the expulsion from Nauvoo, that gets lost. And the brothers cross to Utah, with Heber C. Kimball, who adopts them, as even though they're grown men, into his family. But I think they seem to be keeping track of what's happening in Denmark, because once the Constitution is in play, I think they go to Brigham Young, at least Peter goes to Brigham Young and says, we should go to Denmark. Denmark's a great place. And it's I'm, free now. Yeah, and I've got this half-finished translation. And so Peter Olsen Hansen goes to Denmark with Erastus Snow, who becomes known as the Apostle of the Scandinavians and gets all the credit for translating the Book of Mormon. But I think Peter Olson Hansen actually is the guy, of the man of the hour. And they're accompanied by two other missionaries. One is George Parker Dykes, who had been working among the Norwegians in Fox River, Illinois, and so had some familiarity with the language there. And uh, John Eric Forsgren, who is the first Swedish convert, and he is supposed to go to Sweden, but he goes to Sweden, baptizes his brother, and gets kicked out, and convinces the captain of the ship to drop him off in Denmark instead of taking him all the way back to the United States. So with these four characters who are all very strong-minded, passionate people who show up in Denmark in May and June of 1850, about exactly a year after the Constitution has been passed, and they just start 
talking to people, trying to find people who want to listen. And the people they find are the Baptists. And so they go to some Baptist meetings and then they have their first converts in August, all of whom are drawn from that Baptist congregation in Copenhagen. And when the missionaries arrived, what was the message? What, what kind of ideas were they offering the Danish people as they were inviting them to learn more about Mormonism? Well, it's, it's pretty radical. They um, are basically saying that you've been missing out on the truth and we'll let you know how to really reach God in important ways. And so they go and they tell, they initially tell people that, you know, the second coming of Jesus Christ is quite imminent. And that's a message that permeates the entire 19th century. There's an urgency about this, that the second coming is coming. Um, they're very outspoken about how corrupt the Danish church is, um, describes Lutheran theology as erroneous and apostate, and encourages people to sort of cast aside the tradition of their fathers in order to embrace this restored gospel that will lead them to Christ in time for the second coming. And you also talk in the book about how gathering, the idea of gathering was part of that initial message. I think that comes a little bit after. I mean, it's, it was not the first sort of 1850, let's you know come and go to Utah. That actually is 1851. So I think, I don't know to what extent they actually said this to the very first converts, but very early on, it does become part of it that to be gathered was to become together for that second coming. It wasn't just to come and eat jello and, you know, farm the desert. It was to be present when Christ comes to his church. So this is a pretty brash message that they're offering. And yeah. uh, <laughs> you talk about some of the initial violent opposition, even some of it was violent, uh, that these missionaries faced. Right. And the Danes today find that very shocking, that Danes are not a violent people and they're not, tend, they don't tend to be in the streets protesting, especially not religious minorities. But this is very aggressive missionary work saying, you know, you're wrong, you're damned, you should join our church. Um, and it doesn't help that George Parker Dykes goes to Aalborg to open the mission in Jutland, and he's kind of a biblical prophet figure, hair un- uncombed, beard unshaven, eating dandelions from the side of the road. I mean, going that purser script as literally as he possibly can and preaching fire and brimstone. And so it, but I think the more than just the character of the missionaries, what is threatening to people is this disruption because religious freedom in the abstract is one thing, but to have your neighbors actually joining a different church and meeting this church that seems to say that you're wrong, and it, it casts doubt on the way, the way people have been practicing their beliefs, whether you believe them or not, you feel attacked by that. And so these mobs do gather. A lot of them are incited to a certain extent by Lutheran clergymen who want to drive this theological danger out of Denmark. And so people go and they disrupt meetings and they break windows and they, you know, mock the speakers. And there are some great moments where a group of women take the missionaries under their protection and escort them home to protect them from the mobs and Danish readers writing into newspapers saying, this is not Danish, this is not how we do things. But the gathering, the doctrine of the gathering aggravates that because it also gives a way out for people who have embraced this gospel, broken with the Danish norm, and then had this sense of chosenness, that now you're something special, and especially for people who were day laborers or tenant farmers, who were disenfranchised by the land reforms of the preceding 50 years, this is a really radical empowerment that says, I can go and be something more than you ever thought I could be. And so I think that's as much part of the root cause of these disruptions as the theological differences. That kind of gives a little bit of a profile of the type of people who are likely to convert. Expand on that a little bit more, maybe. The type of of Danes who would hear this message that the missionaries were speaking, what backgrounds were they coming from, and why did this message resonate with them? Well, Denmark was largely rural at the time, so that's one big contrast to today, where it's a very, very urbanized country. But most people 
converting were farmers. They were peasant farmers, tenant farmers, day laborers. Some of them were landowners, but most of them were in this disadvantaged class. In the late 18th century, the crown prince had instituted land reforms that allowed people to consolidate their land and buy their own farms and move up into the middle class. And so of the large group of people who'd been farming in that way in the 18th century, maybe a quarter of them move up into the middle class and three quarters fall down into this day laborer, tenant farmer class. And so they have much less to lose economically by leaving than people who have more established businesses or, or property. And so it's a, it's kind of a well-worn trope that the gospel appeals to the humble and the downtrodden. And it may be that they people are just more receptive spiritually when they're in harder economic circumstances. But in the Danish case, it's also very much people who have less to lose by breaking with society, by taking such a radical step. And when you say breaking with society, you mean that in, in pretty literal fashion, right? Because the identity of what it meant to be Danish was still heavily tied to Lutheranism at this point. Absolutely. That legally, until the Constitution, it was inextricable. You couldn't own land, you couldn't have a job, you couldn't get married if you weren't a Lutheran. There were very small communities of Jews and Catholics and Huguenots who had some protections. Um, and the Jewish situation is itself a topic that many books have been written about. It's very interesting to see how their path to citizenship coincides with these changes. But even after the Constitution, culturally, it's all wrapped up with being Lutheran, that this is the way you are Danish. This is where you interact with your neighbors. And especially through the land reforms, people's village life had been disrupted. So the church had become even more important as a place to meet your neighbors and have your sense of community. And so for missionaries to come and say, your church, which you've always believed in, is wrong, and you should leave that church and break away from your neighbors and form this other church, was terrifying for and a lot of people. maybe even leave the country. Yeah, and then maybe. leave the country, yeah. uh, which is the beginning of Danish immigration. The Norwegians and Swedes had started emigrating already in the 1820s because of financial and economic hardship, but the Danes hadn't. And so the first impetus for immigration, large-scale immigration, comes from Mormons. And, and as you said, that can threaten the status quo. That's Julie K. Allen, a professor of comparative literature and Scandinavian studies at Brigham Young University. And we're talking about her book, Danish But Not Lutheran, The Impact of Mormonism on Danish Cultural Identity, 1850 to 1920. So, Julie, your research suggests that initial responses to Mormonism in Denmark tend to fall in two distinct camps. On the one hand, there was some of this vigorous opposition from the masses, so to speak. But on the other hand, some of Denmark's educated elites started to engage with Mormonism. They took a more philosophical and measured approach to it, even if it was combative. It was kind of on that level of civilized combat, you might say. So let's begin with some of the ways that educated elite Danes were confronting Mormonism. And I wanted to start with the realist painter Kristen Dalsgaard, is that right? Dalsgaard would be the okay. Danish pronunciation. Great. Sure. So let's, let's talk about how he engaged with Mormonism. Sure. So the Danes have a long history of great artists, um, and a lot of this peaks in the 19th century. They have the realist artists in the mid-century and the Scaean painters toward the later part of the century who are really interested in observing the world as it is. And so Kristen Dalsgaard falls into this camp. He wasn't as far as I can tell, particularly religious beyond being Lutheran. But he was very interested in the people of Denmark and trying to understand their experiences. And so he was commissioned to paint a picture of... Um, Do you have the whole title? Because it's awesome. Yeah, it's a the great The whole title, title of it, is, it's... Two Mormons have, in the course of their wanderings, entered the home of a country carpenter where they seek to win new followers 
By means of preaching and exhibiting various of their sects' scriptures. That's the title. Right. Yeah, so this long, long title of this painting, um, he submitted it for the National Exhibition in 1856, and it was immediately purchased by the Society for Nordic Art, which I think is an acknowledgement of, the, of how well he captured this moment in Danish life. And when you say capture moment, it sort of reminds me of like the correspondent photographers for Time Magazine or yeah. something today where they go and the idea is to capture a scene, like capture a moment that shows people doing their people things. Right. And they didn't have photography. Painting played that role. Sure. In, in some ways, he's a, an, anticipating the Danish-American photographer and social, photojournalist Jakob Ries, who would go into the slums in New York and with Teddy Roosevelt and break open the door and photograph people sleeping, you know, 15 to the floor. But yeah, Dan Scott was trying to to get a sense of what people were experiencing. And it's not just about secularization. It's about a time of, of enormous transition and change in Denmark. As I'd mentioned, the breakup of village life as a result of land reforms had changed the way farmers related to each other. The constitution and the introduction of suffrage for men and democracy changed the way related to the state. The king had gone from being a benevolent father figure to being a constitutional monarch who could theoretically be deposed. And so they're trying to understand how they relate to this new version of Denmark. And I think that's what Dalesgård captures here. And it's so fortunate for me as a historian um, that he wrote this letter explaining what he was trying to accomplish in this painting. And he's trying to understand the different factors at play for people listening to Mormon missionaries. What is it that is attractive to people? The blind girl at the center of the painting seems to have been captivated by the promise of healing. And there are lots of accounts of miraculous healings. There's a Danish historian who has written about the miracles that were very much a part of the early conversions, that it was very often somebody who had been ill that was healed or had had a loss of a family member who was attracted to the gospel. But he also sees in the other members in the room sort of skepticism, people worried that these promises are pie in the sky, that there's no way that this could actually be. The carpenter whose home the Mormons are meeting in, Dalesgård describes as too healthy in nature to want anything to do with this sect without even really knowing why, sort of an instinctive rejection of, of these promises. But you see the way people are gathering in this home, people looking through the window, trying to understand what this means. Even the little child under the table looking up at the carpenter makes it feel very immediate. And this is exactly what was happening. They're going into homes all over the country, uh, particularly in Jutland, and teaching people this revolutionary doctrine. And in some cases, I have been told, they would carry pictures of America, pictures of Utah, and say, this is what awaits you. If you join this gospel, you can go and have these you know, fields of grain waiting for you. So sort of marketing America at the same time as they're selling the gospel. And I think you get that sense here from Deosco. Obviously, he feels like the missionary he describes as sly and devious is a reprehensible person, but he doesn't seem to be condemning this scene. He's just showing this is what's happening in the homes of Danish peasants. Yeah, that's what's really interesting is, in contrast to some of the really vocal opposition to Mormonism, he really is just apparently here just depicting a scene. It doesn't seem to be skewed for or against Mormons. And you found that this painting, it was mentioned in a recent general conference, you said as well. Talk about that a little bit. Yeah, it was uh, mentioned in conference and attributed to Arnold Freeberg, uh, which I found rather jarring. Didn't so, he paint every Mormon painting? <laughs> well, naturally, he did paint this, but he copied the Dalesgore painting and he attributed it to Dalesgore. So attributing to Freeburg is kind of like attributing the Mona Lisa to me if I was to make a copy. 
You should. Have you ever? <laughs> you've never gave it a try. Not but what's yet. what interests me about that is the fact that that painting then can can be used by Mormons as well. Like it, it it shows that the almost photographic nature of of the approach. Absolutely, it, and know. I think Dalesgore's style inspires uh, Carl Christian Anton Christensen, CCA Christensen, who's one of the great early Mormon Danish American artists. This capturing the life of the saints on the trail is what Christensen is trying to do. He was attending art school in Copenhagen when he joined the Mormon church, and he later did more training. And so Deuscore is establishing a, a type of artistic study that Christensen picks up on. That's realism, right? This idea that it's what it sounds like. It's a real picture of something that's happening. Right, but it's sort of a, a, almost a psychological realism because there's all these ideas informing the different expressions and faces that that Dale score is, is trying to convey through the painting. Yeah, and that to them would be almost more real, like you're capturing yeah. even more by by using facial expressions and, and that type right, of thing. Right, by knowing, intuiting what they're thinking. Yeah. Yeah, another example of a cultural elite that was engaging with Mormonism is the philosopher Soren Kierkegaard's brother, Peter Christian Kierkegaard. He's a fascinating example. He differed from his brother on some things. He also differed from Mormons on some things. What did Kierkegaard's opposition look like? So Kierkegaard was a pastor in the Danish Lutheran Church, but not really in the mainstream. He was a follower of Niels Felix Seven Grundtvig, and Grundtvig really advocated a big tent Christianity. He calls it a Romali Kirke, an expansive, a capacious church. And so Kierkegaard had been involved in the Baptist crisis, had rejected the forcible baptism of Baptist children, and was well disposed towards allowing people to choose their own congregations, to follow their hearts. And he, I think, was also a very sincere believer, uh, very much a convert to Lutheranism spiritually himself. But he was also a pastor appointed by the state with responsibility for the parishes of Pilsbor and Soru near the Soru Academy, which has been a hub of Danish intellectual life for centuries. And so when he discovers in August of 1854 that Mormons are preaching in his parish, it's a threat to his livelihood. And he sort of kicks into gear as the pastor and does his job, meets with the missionaries, and talks to Matthias Hemmert, who's the, the man whose home they're meeting in, is invited to speak at their meeting, and comes to counter the missionaries' claims, which I think is exactly what he was supposed to do in his job and what we would expect of a sort of similar situation if it was reversed here today. And when he comes to the meeting, he speaks from prepared remarks that he later publishes as a pamphlet called About and Against Mormonism. And it runs to about 50 published pages. And if you want to read it, it's in BYU Studies from 2007 in translation with annotations. But he tries very hard to be responsible. He's not following in the style of people who are trying to slander the church or reproduce hearsay from the American or British press. He takes the missionaries exactly at their word and says he won't use anything that he's heard about the Mormons. He'll only address what they have said. And he does resort to humor and mockery to a certain extent. He talks about the Midas touch of the sticks of Joseph and sticks of Judah, stick of Joseph and Judah being converted to gold plates in the United States and how that, of course, is attractive. And he has some penchant for alliteration, seeing the Mohammedans and the Mormons and the Methodists and Mennonites all as sort of threats to the order of Lutheranism. But he tries mostly to appeal to his listeners' own spiritual convictions, to speak of how the charge that there had been an apostasy was problematic for people who believed in the continuity of the confession of faith from the days of Christ to the days of the present, to call Christ a gambler um, who couldn't make good on his bets, 
is for Peter Christian Kierkegaard something very threatening to one's own testimony. And so I think he stands out from his peers. Many other pastors had written against the church, but for this very sincere engagement with the fundamental principle of could there have been an apostasy and restoration, or does that contradict the nature of Christ's promise to his church? And how did he differ from his brother, Soren Kierkegaard? And, and according to your book, we don't have clear examples of Soren really engaging with Mormonism in particular. I think there might be one instance when he mentions Mormonism, mm-hmm. but it's it's peripheral. Uh, how did he differ? How did the two Kierkegaards differ from each other? Well, that's what's fascinating. And actually, this encounter between the brothers, or non-encounter, was one of the founding moments for me in writing this book was because Søren Kierkegaard was very, very passionately devout, raised in the same household as his brother. They were pietists, very much that means engaged. they were like even more Lutheran. Like right. we want to really, Super Lutherans, yeah, yeah, like we say our prayers and even he would more. Go to, and he would go to church on Fridays yeah. because fewer people went on Fridays and it showed extra devotion. Yeah. I and mean, he was very, very committed to his faith. And so for people to say that Søren Kierkegaard was anti-Christian, I think, is a fundamental misreading. Why did people start saying that? Because he's co-opted by the existentialists in the 20th century. Okay, so and later they, philosophers borrow— And they strip away the Christianity okay. and focus on the focus, the individual. And he had been critical of the church, so you can point but to that. But that's the thing that is interesting, that he was very critical of the Danish Lutheran Church as an obstacle to people's religiosity. At the same time as his brother is encountering the Mormons, Søren is embarking on what he— comes to be known as the attack on Christendom. And Christendom is not Christianity. Christendom is the apparatus. It's the, the church. It's the bureaucracy. It's institution. The institution that he feels like is is distracting people from their actual relationship to God. Which Mormons were trying to say as well. In, right. In, in, but not in terms of their institution, but with regards to the Lutheran institution. Right. Yeah. And he felt like paid clergy was a major problem. He felt like he calls them cannibals living off the flesh of their parishioners. And he felt like people, much like Monrad, weren't taking responsibility for their own faith. He calls them geese being fattened for the slaughter, who have been told that they have wings, but they're not supposed to be able to fly. And so Kierkegaard embarks, Søren embarks on this attack on Christendom at the same time as Peter Christian is debating with the Mormons. And so for me, they're in conversation with each other indirectly, which is really appropriate for the way Kierkegaard uh, always writes. Yeah, he would write under different names and things like right, that. Right, and trying yeah. to put different perspectives in conversation and not tell you exactly what to think, but just raise perspectives. And so Peter Christian is saying, the church that has nurtured you is the continuation through the oral confession of faith from the church that Christ established on earth, and you should stick with that. And Søren says, that church is getting in your way. That church is holding you back from really engaging with God. You should grapple with Christ and with your testimony on your own terms. What do you think Søren's impression of Mormonism would have been? Just It's hard to, I mean, it's a guessing game, I realize. Right. But based on what he said, what do you think? I think there would have been things he would have been sympathetic to, that the idea of being unpaid clergy, of going out by conviction of sacrificing everything, that was a, a topic that Kierkegaard really felt strongly about, that you need to sacrifice for your faith. And so I think he would have approved of the missionaries going out and devoting themselves to this cause and for the converts, selling thi- uh, selling all their belongings, emigrating to Zion, really following their faith. But at the same time, the fact that they were doing that to join a church in some ways, I think, would have not appealed to Kierkegaard, that he felt like they were just then surrendering that agency to a different institution. How wide-reaching do you think Peter Christian Kierkegaard's writings would have been? Like, how many regular Danish people would have been familiar with it, and compared to, say, Kristen Dalsgaard's painting? Well, Kristen Dalsgaard was was painting for the elites, you know, went right into museum collections and was 
not something that ordinary people would have seen, except in their own lives, they would have had maybe encountered that experience. But Peter Christian Kierkegaard, he was he was a rock star. He was the Dr. Kierkegaard that everybody knew. Søren was this crazy guy with two short pant legs running around the uh, walkways of Copenhagen, whereas Peter Christian was respected. He was a bishop. He was a minister in the government. He was very, very much a celebrity of the day. He was actually known as the, the debating devil of the North during his PhD studies in Germany. And so I think his arguments against Mormonism would have had a very wide audience. He gave the talk or spoke at the meeting, and then he published them as a pamphlet in the Danish Church News, and then he published it as a book, and he would go around giving presentations to local communities and other pastors would write to him asking for his advice like there's mormons in my parish what should i do sort of a dear abby for (laughs) dealing with mormon missionaries and so i think he was very wide-reaching i think it's particularly poignant that they're talking about the same question of religious freedom and religious identity at a time when they were not speaking to each other that in 1849 Peter Christian had called Søren an ecstatic to a council of pastors, and Søren was heartbroken. He was devastated. His only remaining sibling, his all of his other siblings had died. His parents had died. This is his only brother who is dismissing him as kind of a crazy visionary. as a crazy visionary who yeah. doesn't who's who can't be relied on. And Søren was very responsible. He he had this very clear methodology about trying not to tell anyone what to think. But as his health is declining and he spent all his money on promoting his very personal view that you need to engage with God personally to be saved, to have this rupture with his brother is kind of heartbreaking. And so Søren pours his health and his energy into this attack on Christendom as Peter is going around being feted by everybody as the, you know, the great champion of the Danish church. And then he dies. Søren dies having never spoken to his brother again, but he leaves his papers to him and it gives this question of legacy into the hands of his brother who he didn't know believed in him. And he could have destroyed the papers if he wanted to. Why do you think he didn't? I think it has to do with personal integrity, that, that Peter Christian was of the same cloth as his brother. And so he wrestled with himself what to do with this. He gave them to editors to deal with who did modify the papers, but he didn't throw them out and he didn't burn them and he had them published and he tried, I think, to be responsible. But there's a moment around Søren's funeral that is really telling that for Peter Christian, the church of the Danish church, Folkekirchen, and Peter Christian coined that name, Folkekirchen. The People's Church. The People's Church. It was definitely the way to salvation. And so when Søren dies, he has him buried in a Danish Lutheran church cemetery, which Søren's nephew takes offense at. At the graveside, he says, Søren wouldn't have wanted this. He was breaking with the church. Why would you do this to him? Why would you co-opt him for the church? But Peter Christian, I think, was very invested in making his, keeping his brother inside the fold. These type of family divisions weren't exclusive to the Lutheran faith. A little bit later on, we'll talk about how some family divisions and difficulties happen for Danish Mormons as well. But let's talk about one more cultural elite engagement with Mormonism. This is Elisa Stampa. She was a highly privileged Danish woman, and she wrote a manuscript about Mormons that was never ultimately published, but it's really a fascinating manuscript. Uh, It seems like a dear friend of hers had converted to Mormonism, and it prompted her desire to look into this faith and write about it. Absolutely. Elisa Stampa is a Danish noblewoman. Her family, her parents were the mentors of the sculptor Torvaldsen, whose Christus is everywhere in Mormon temple visitor yeah. centers. Yeah, it's the famous white statue at Temple Square. Exactly yeah. right. And so, and, and Grontvi, who I've mentioned a couple of times, was her pastor, Her um, and she was confirmed 
is with him. And so she was very much an insider in the Danish Lutheran system. But she has the education and has traveled and has studied other cultures to give her some perspective on what's happening. And so when she has this friend who becomes a Mormon, she decides that it's not enough to just condemn it out of hand based on hearsay and and slander, but she really needs to understand what it is that appeals to her friend. And so she takes that psychological realism that Kristen Dayoskor visualizes in the painting and internalizes that to think, what is going on in my friend's heart? What strains of truth are being played on that are then being converted in her mind into falsehood eventually? And so she writes this book, and if I can quote a little bit from the Mm -hmm. foreword, she says, it would be asking a great deal of the reader to digest an entire book about Mormonism. That's you should have led with that, by the way, like in your book, like it would be yeah. asking a lot of the reader to expect them to read a whole book about Mormonism. Now, here we go. I should have in the next edition. I'll have to change that. <laughs> um, but she says that people, if they're intellectually responsible, need to take the time. He says that Mormonism, which attracts only ignorant, uneducated wretches with no prospects in the in the mind of the public, which is rarely even mentioned in the civilized world and can't even be bothered to be written about. She says, how can we understand what people are thinking if we don't understand what they're converting to. And so she presents it here, she says, as a highly interesting and enlightening phenomenon, but also as not exactly as a theology, but rather a combination of doctrines that pose quite serious questions for which we need to find answers, whether it be in Mormonism itself or somewhere else. And so kind of like Kierkegaard, who was also a Gritvigian, opening up to the question that there might be truth outside of what we know, and what is there in Mormonism that appeals to us? And then she goes on to quote from Parley P. Pratt and the Voice of Warning and the Doctrine and Covenants and the Pearl of Great Price. And she says that the Book of Mormon for her is not even the most radical part. It's the Doctrine and Covenants, this ongoing revelation and a living prophet today. That's what she finds really compelling. And she she's trying this open-minded approach. She's not uncritical at the same time, but it's it's you get a sense from her manuscript that she really was trying to understand Mormons on their own terms. And she was also giving a place giving voice to Mormons themselves within her work as well, and letting almost letting them self-represent as well. Absolutely. She quotes at length um, from not only missionaries and published writings, but from people. She says, if you meet a Mormon on the street and you ask him, he will say this. And so she clearly was talking to Mormons on the street about what they felt and why they were converting. And she's very open to the beauty of the scriptures. She'll quote at length from the scriptures, from the Mormon scriptures to say how beautiful they are and how much they would appeal to someone of a poetic nature, really under, trying to understand what is good in Mormonism, and then saying, but this is where we differ. This is what I think because of my Lutheran beliefs, and this is why I wouldn't accept Mormonism. But I think it's a it's a very Kierkegaardian approach as well. He says you need to meet people where they are to take them to where you want them to go, and she does exactly that. For someone who is interested in Mormonism, they find a lot of positive description that she then leads them to saying, but this is why I disagree. And while she's writing this, she's also corresponding with, with a church figure as well. With Gontvi. Yes. Yeah, yeah. So talk about that a little bit. That relationship is interesting. Yeah. So Gontvi was a kind of a father figure for her. She had gone to confirmation with him and he was her spiritual mentor. And she was sure that he would not approve of her relationship with this Mormon woman and writing about Mormonism. And so she doesn't write for a while, but then she does write to him and defends her decision to write about Mormonism and so for me, for me, in some ways, becomes a spokesperson for the Grundvigian engagement with Mormonism, since Grundvi himself doesn't seem to have written about, about Mormonism. But it's a very courageous move for a woman, who, I mean, at a time when there was some, women had some rights and women of her class had some rights, but they didn't have their vote. They didn't have political agency in the way they, that they could influence public policy. And she becomes 
a representative not just of Gondwigianism, but also of women taking a different approach to understanding this new phenomenon. And you found in some of that correspondence, too, that it seems as though her friend actually died during this. During yes, this yeah. And so Gondwig writes, as you know, it's kind of a relief, you know, saves her from the, the hellfire that she would have endured by being a Mormon. But for Elisa, I think it's really a, a tragedy that she has lost this friend that she dearly wanted to understand. And she never published it, though. She published a lot of other books. It's I know it's guesswork yet again, but what are your thoughts about the fact that this book never actually saw the light of day and you had to find it in an archive someplace and then translate it? Well, most of her books were self-published. Again, the publishing was not the same field it is today. And Kierkegaard, many of his books were also self-published. Well, his, his newspapers, at least. Yeah, so it's not like she needed to find a publisher to do it. She could right. have done it. But I think it has to do with, that, with her friend dying, that if she was writing this for her friend and her friend was no longer the audience, that maybe she lost heart and just didn't have the motivation to push it through. Though I think it would be enormously interesting for people to read, both to understand how missionaries were representing themselves in Denmark at the time and how she was engaging with that. So one of my future projects is to get that uh, transcribed and translated. Yeah, even the excerpts that you include in the book are really interesting. In fact, I think that was probably my favorite part of this book was getting to know her and her thought process and, and the open way in which she engaged with a religion that was threatening to other people. Uh, do you think that also might have played into it, or did she publish other manuscripts that might have been controversial? She published some things that were controversial. She wrote a lot about religion in other countries. She wrote some very powerful books about Danish national identity, particularly after the War of 1864, which was a devastating time for Danes. And so she, I think, identifies Danishness with that same sort of conception that Monrad had of an open-mindedness, a broad-mindedness that the Danes today, I think, also share. Hmm. That's Julie K. Allen. She's a professor of comparative literature and Scandinavian studies here at Brigham Young University. And we're talking about the book Danish, but not Lutheran. And as people can tell by now, that title, Danish but not Lutheran, was to signal the idea that being Danish was to be Lutheran until this constitutional revolution happened there, and then all these other religions, including Mormonism, popped up. So rather than telling a history of the of the LDS Church in Denmark, uh, you decided to talk about what Mormonism's presence there suggested about Danish people, about culture, about identity, why that approach? A lot of times when people talk about Mormon history, they're just going to say, this is the date when the missionaries arrived. They met this person. This person was baptized. A branch was established. This person visited, and so on through that. Why your approach? Well, in part because the other approach has been done. Andrew Jensen, the historian of uh, assistant church historian for many years, he wrote a history of the Scandinavian mission and provided a lot of those dates, who was baptized when, who was transferred where, but that only has interest for people who are really invested in that particular development. William Mulder, the eminent historian who was at the University of Utah for many years, wrote the, the story of the emigration in his book, Homeward to Zion. And he tells, again, terrific stories, which is of interest also to people whose ancestors came. But the question of what it meant to convert, what your neighbors thought, what kind of a repercussion there was in society as a result of these changes, that story hadn't, hadn't been told. And so that was the story that I decided to try and tell. And I was amazed to find how much resonance there was, how many people were talking about Mormonism, and not just in dismissive ways, as we've already discussed. That was one thing I really appreciated as well. This book doesn't seem like it was written as an attempt to cheerlead for Mormonism itself, but, but to really try to get at what it was like to be a Mormon in that country, or what it was like to engage with Mormons in that country at that time. And 
And I think that's a really valuable exercise because you're, you notice things that that would otherwise be overlooked, including the fact that there were Danish people that were sympathetic to Mormonism. They might not have joined, but they didn't like violence against Mormonism. Some people like Elisa would actually engage with members of the LDS church and try to understand them from their perspectives and this sort of thing. So it's not, what I'm saying is you are a Latter-day Saint yourself writing a book about Latter-day Saints, but it doesn't seem like it's advocating on behalf of the LDS church. I don't think that's my job. I think my job is to help us understand this, the history of the time more fully. And I don't think it, I think it does a disservice to focus on this victim narrative that, you know, the t- valiant Mormon missionaries came in and were terrorized by the saints and a few valiant souls came and converted and fled because that's not helpful, especially for global Mormonism today. People need to live in their countries and be part of their societies. And the question of how you do that is something that we're still figuring out. But I think this example of how over the 70 year period, it goes from being a foreign religion to something that Danes can be and be Danish, which is really inspiring, I think, also as the church is moving into other countries. And I think also we tend in Mormon historiography not to give countries and other cultures in-depth examinations. We look at the church as an incursion into that culture without understanding the culture that it's participating in. And it makes it, in my mind, more impressive what converts were willing to do, what missionaries were able to do, but also to understand how the church can grow in those countries by understanding what the stakes were. Yeah, and as part of that transition from being like violently opposed to sort of cultural elites opposition and and uncertainty about Mormonism, it also went through a, a period where there were some popular responses to Mormonism that that were even kind of fun or funny. Mormonism went from something to be feared to, be to a meme. something to be yeah. It was it became meme memified. Let's talk. Let's talk about that. What, an example would be the penny songs that you explore. Sure. So I think that what we have in the 1850s is this theological response to the doctrinal challenge of Mormonism. But once there's some critical mass and there's people converting, you know, not not just in the teens and or handfuls, but in the, by the hundreds and leaving, there are entire boatloads of Mormon emigrants in the 1850s and 1860s. It really permeates into the public consciousness. How could that not feel like a judgment against right. you as a Danish person? How dare you? What's wrong with us? You're leaving. Yeah. You're you're not a Dane. You. Right. You've cast this aside. And it's before there's a large scale migration of Danish Lutherans, which comes in the 60s and 70s. And by the 1880s, it's largely Lutherans that are leaving. And so Mm. that has changed the parameters a little bit. But the question still of what are they seeing that I'm not seeing mm-hmm. really informs these questions. And so the the penny ballads I talk about called Skillingsvisa in Danish were the most popular entertainment there was. This is social media, right? They're really cheap, really quick printed, distributed as handbills on the street. And they tell sort of, again, like social media, stories that engage with people's emotions. You know, a rich young girl who falls in with the missionaries, goes to Utah and is married to an old man as his seventh wife and has this life of misery and drudgery and longs for home. You know, so this is a BuzzFeed. It's a clickbait. Yeah. Um, and so these kinds of stories, and there aren't that many that I could find preserved of the penny ballads, but they would have had wide circulation and people would have known these stories and, and taken them as people often do still today, for fact, right? There's a story of a, a rich farmer who you know, invests all his money with the Mormons and leaves and, and regrets it later. And so these kinds of stories circulated widely beyond even the penny ballads themselves, but it's in retelling and being you know, performed at social events. And people would, oh, did you hear the one about the guy? 
Yeah. Ole, there's this great one about this man, Ole and his wife, daughter, who go to the Mormons and they go, he says, because it's pleasant to be there. They've got, you know, geese stuffed with parsley for dinner every day. And you can have as many wives as you want. And so Ole and his wife go to the Mormons and he gets a little cottage and he has a couple of extra wives, but he has to work and there's not roast goose every day and the wives squabble and he has to, he, there's no, nothing to drink. He says, this is terrible. Let's go home. And that's where we'll stay in Denmark. Yeah, it kind of fits into to classic tropes of cheering for the home country, where mm-hmm. people, you know, the grass is always greener on the other side type of stories, right? And what's interesting about these is it's not engaging on doctrinal levels, theological levels. These more popular responses to Mormonism are much more focused on social ramifications. Yeah, even on the level of polygamy, the, the mob violence in Denmark predated the announcement of polygamy. And then there are some moments in the 1850s when the clergy is trying to figure out if polygamy is being practiced in the in Denmark. And the primate of the Danish church sends out a circular to all the pastors and says, you know, report on whether or not polygamy is being practiced. And the pastors sort of survey their congregations and come back and say, no, there's a lot of Lutherans living in sin, but there's no polygamy we can find. And so it's this very pragmatic, down-to-earth approach that you see in this popular media as well. People saying, you know, really, is it going to be so much better in America? Is polygamy really that much more fun? You know, Ola and his wife discovering that it's actually not, not a bed of roses is, I think, part of that. And so this sort of deflating impulse to say, it's, it's you know, those pie-in-the-sky stories are pie in the sky. And so don't believe everything you hear. Yeah. And so as technology advances, they're going to go from penny songs to things like silent films. And you spend a little time in the book talking about how Mormonism pops up in some early Danish silent films as well. Right. And the very first anti-Mormon film ever made is Danish, which I thought was very interesting. It's called Victim of the Mormons. And it's not like a B production, you know, made on a shoestring. This is made by Nordisk, the biggest film company in Denmark, which exported hundreds of films to the whole world in this period. And it stars Valdemar Silanda, who was like Brad Pitt, right? He was the highest paid movie star in Denmark by a wide margin in this period. And so this is a blockbuster film. Hollywood blockbuster. Absolutely. And it's building on a series of successful erotic melodramas about the white slave trade. And so right about this time, Mormonism has come in the crosshairs of the white slave trade campaigns, people campaigning against the slave trade, I should specify. And so it's an easy fit to say, well, let's make the Mormons the next subject of their next white slave trade film and have Valdemar Silander as a crowd pleaser and Clara Witt, who is a leading actress. And it follows a very clear pattern of girl explores forbidden intellectual territory, gets into trouble, is rescued by brother and or fiance. We're told in the program notes that her fiance Sven is too occupied with sports to pay attention to his fiance. That's why she falls in with the Mormons. And there's kind of slapstick moments. Silanda as the missionary Andrew Larson wears a false mustache on board ship and he's abducted um, Nina, who has changed her mind, he drugs her, puts her on the boat, goes out for a smoke on deck, and his mustache falls off and you know catches the attention of the, the radio man on the boat. And so there's all kinds of moments that trigger this as entertainment. This is not an engagement with Mormon doctrine. This is a way to, to show people, you know, that, yeah, Mormons might be a threat, but it's an interesting threat that involves, you know, car chases and transatlantic scavenger hunts and a trap door in the, the living room of Silander's house through which he falls when Nina finds the lever in the basement and he shoots himself and all is well that ends well. <laughs> it's funny how these things map onto things that happen today. So in the past, we had these sort of 
clerical engagements with Mormonism where, where religious figures are combating the, the evil doctrines of Mormonism. And then you have these popular lampoonings. I mean, we see clear parallels today in countercult literature and then in things like the Book of Mormon musical, which is a lampooning thing. But I think what's interesting is that when you get to that stage of being lampooned, you've already gained a degree of acceptance, that people are familiar enough with you that you've become a trope. And so they don't have to tell you all the background. They can just say, oh, you know, this is what Mormonism associates with in our minds, and let's go with that. One of my very favorite of these silent films is called He's a Mormon, and it's an eight-minute short by the comedy director Lau Lauritsen, and it stars a man, or it features a man having an affair, and his wife comes home unexpectedly, catches him with his mistress, and he says, oh, it's my sister-in-law from America. Then his brother from America telegrams, says, we're on the boat, we're coming to visit you. He shows up having lost his wife in the tumult at the dock. And the brother says, pretend this is your wife yeah, so I don't get in trouble. Yeah, cover, yeah. Right. And so he does. But then the, the real wife shows up <laughs> and the adulterer says, well, my brother's a Mormon. Yes. And explains it all away. And there's no engagement with Mormonism. It's really just with Danish morals and infidelity. And, and it hasn't become a meme. People can understand, oh, yeah. But they don't necessarily actually have any hard feelings against Mormons at that point, just as I don't think the Book of Mormon musical is trying to actually make fun of actual Mormons. Yeah, it's just sort of this social commentary or sort of fun playing around with with tropes and ideas in comparison with these other sort of like counter-cult literature, which is we've got to keep people away from Mormonism in religious terms. These these things serve completely different purposes. Absolutely. Yeah. In fact, there's a Tivoli. Um, Tivoli is the amusement park in the center of Copenhagen, and they have a... a review every summer like a vaudeville show and in 1911 the same year the film comes out victim of the mormons they have a vaudeville show that features a film a song called mormons mormons and it says you know that jensen wants to have a wife swapping event in his parlor with, with hansen and he's gonna have hansen's wife and hansen will have his but then he has to get with jensen's mother you know and all these things he says we don't need mormons for wife swapping we can do that ourselves yeah some of the differences between pop cultural responses to mormonism and engagement with mormonism compared to more theological responses to Mormonism are really interesting. We're talking with Julie Allen about the book Danish But Not Lutheran. So we've talked a lot about how people reacted and responded to Mormons. We haven't talked as much about people that converted themselves. And your book also includes conversion stories and stories of people who were Danish and decided to join the LDS faith. And Mormons were recording their stories in personal writings. They're also publishing things publicly to tell their stories. So did these type of stories differ by venue? You studied personal writings and public writings. Yes, I think in the Scandinavia Star, which is the church publication, they tend to be really faith promoting and only tell the good things about, you know, what it's like to be in Zion with your fellow believers and how wonderful that is. But in the personal writings, they tend to be a little more nuanced and you get a sense of the cost of conversion, not to say that people regretted their conversion. Even in one of the stories I tell of a man named Mass Nielsen who had to leave his wife and most of his children behind to gather to Zion, he is absolutely convinced of the rightness of his choice. But that doesn't lessen, in fact, it heightens the cost of his conversion, that he feels like he has to be in Utah for the second coming of Christ, and he wants his wife to be there, and she won't come, but he can't not go. And I think that that makes, humanizes him in a way that glossier, you know, faith-promoting narrative might not. Yeah, that won't, the details of that story aren't going to seem inspirational in that context. The people wanted good stories, stories that 
sort of affirmed those decisions and didn't focus as much on the costs. What are some other examples of, of costs that converts paid to join the, the faith there? Well, obviously financial costs. Another couple I write about, Hans and Wilhelmina Jöransen, he joined the church as a 17-year-old farmhand and was transferred away from his farm by his master because he had joined the church. And so he goes into sort of exile. And he, as soon as he obtains his majority, he becomes a missionary and spends three years preaching to his fellow Danes, emigrates to Utah, meets Wilhelmine. They get married, get a farmstead in Pleasant Grove, have five children, are just barely eking out of existence. And he's called on a mission back to Denmark in 1881. And he's gone for three years, leaving her alone with these five kids on a farm that she's never farmed herself. And he writes in his response to President Taylor that this is going to be really hard for my family, but I'll do it. And he does go. But their correspondence is amazing because you see both how she endures, which is less the subject in this book as in other things I've written, but also for him what it's like to go home again and see what he has given up culturally, that he doesn't feel like a part of the Danish people. He talks about them and they and their experiences in Denmark. He's critical of them for papering their parlors and riding in well-sprung carriages and sort of getting above their station. But he's also critical of their lack of religiosity and their unwillingness to hear his message. And so I think that he, but he's writing this in Danish to his Danish wife. Right. And, and even in that context, they still spoke the language of their home country. It, I don't remember if he ended up learning English, but she didn't. Is that right? Not very well. I mean, she would attend English meetings occasionally, but her whole world was Danish. Yeah. So they, they were stuck in this place where Danish wasn't home anymore and they were establishing a new home in Zion and Utah and doing this, but they weren't fully at home there either. And Brigham Young recognized that. He encouraged English usage in church, but he also allowed for the creation of these Danish language congregations because he recognized that people, as we know, need to hear the gospel in their own language. And so for Hans and Wilhelmina, they lived in this parallel society in, in Pleasant Grove, which is about half Scandinavian, half Anglo. And her network of support was largely Danish. So Danish culture permeated their lives. At the same time, they had chosen to adopt this Mormon identity that was different from that of their fam their fellow Danes, also their fellow Danish immigrants to the United States who were Lutheran. But even their Mormon identity was yeah, so they're not doubly alienated. Yeah, and it wasn't fully yeah. So they differed with Mormonism on certain things as well. I'm thinking of polygamy in particular. So it's, <laughs> they didn't throw all in with, with Mormonism either in some respects. Right. And that's a really interesting question. There's lots of anecdotal evidence of Danes, for example, not being willing to drink coffee, uh, not being willing to give up coffee. Right. You know, like that's just too Danish. I can't give that up. And, yeah. and of course, Jennifer Lund has pointed out that there are many other converts who also didn't give up coffee and it wasn't nearly as emphasized in the 19th century church as it later became. But I think it's important to remember that cultural identity is so multifaceted that people are not just a, an ideology. And so, yes, they embraced the church. Yes, they came to Utah, but they retained their language. They ascribed to the American dream of making it for yourself. But they also still value their Danish her heritage, their holidays, their food. Mass Nielsen, he plants acres and acres of Danish berries, and his daughter-in-law makes Danish food, and he's, they always had regret that it's never quite the same as it was in Denmark. They have Danish bands, and they have Danish dances, and in fact, to the point that the Swedes in the church complain that the Danes get too many advantages and are you know, privileged members of the church. They Why? also get an like, apostle. What was the difference to them? Because they had an apostle? <laughs> well, they get Anton Lund as yeah. an apostle, just that they numerically were far more significant and were much more represented. The, huh. the Swedish feud is a 
tempest in a teapot. But yeah, and this whole this whole story really is about negotiating these identities and how multifaceted these converts really were. They they were Mormon, they were Danish, with footnotes, with asterisks, Absolutely. and and that's really what I wanted to get across in this chapter, especially for people who have Danish ancestry, is to understand the complete people that their ancestors were. To understand that that negotiating identity meant sacrificing things that mattered to them, but also hanging on to things that maybe weren't as mainstream as we'd like to see them as having been. That they didn't come to America and jettison their cultural identity. They brought it with them and they contributed to the shaping of Utah culture that we don't necessarily know. But there's a fascinating article that was published a couple of years ago about Danish speech particles that are still existent in English spoken in Sandby County. And people don't know that they're speaking in Danish syntax and using Danish formulations in English. Like what kind of things? I can't think of any examples offhand, but I can send you the article. Yeah. <laughs> we'll link to it on the blog or there something, too. That, that's really interesting. Um that's Julie Allen. We're talking about her book, Danish But Not Lutheran. She is a professor of comparative literature and Scandinavian studies here at Brigham Young University. Do you have family connections uh, to Denmark yourself, or how did you get interested in this? I have one Danish great-great-grandmother who married Samuel Knight and was at Mountain Meadows. They had a new wagon, and he came home with a wagon full of orphans after the mm. massacre. But she died when she was 39, mm. and she had married her, her daughter married into a Swiss clan, the Hafens, and that Danish line was just sort of erased from at least my consciousness. But when I went to Denmark as a missionary, I discovered I had this Danish connection. But really more than that, I, mean, I sometimes say that I went to Denmark as a missionary and I got converted uh, to Danishness because I just discovered there were so many interesting stories. The Danish saints were such a huge part of the early church and they don't their story doesn't get told as a danish story it gets told as a pioneer story but the specificity of their experience has been lost yeah that's what makes this book stick out to me in your conclusion of the book you talk about what histories like this one can say about the present and what people can learn from history or think about similar issues and by looking at past events we can sort of come back to the present with new eyes. Do you think that history has morals to teach like that? What are your thoughts about history as sort of moral instruction or, or something like that? I'm a big believer in Santayana's quote that if we don't know history, we're bound to repeat it. And I think that history teaches us how things have been done and helps us helps guide us in the present. So whether it teaches a moral lesson is harder to say, but it definitely teaches lessons. And I think, for me, one of the triggers for writing this book was the Muhammad cartoon crisis of 2005, looking at Denmark in that era, grappling with a new Muslim population, trying to understand where the limits are, where the limits of mockery yeah, are, so and free speech. some cartoons of the Prophet Muhammad, which offended some Muslims, even to the point of wanting to, to respond with violence or anger. Right. right. And so it was a, a different situation, and I don't... I, I didn't end up being a very visible part of the framing of the book, but also because of for later developments that changed the, the parameters of that situation. But this idea of how the majority relates to minority religion um, and how you find acceptance, I think, is something that we are definitely struggling with today, also in the United States. Um, and in the church, how do we accept cultural difference and not make that a marker of ideological dissimilarity? And so I think that history definitely has lessons to teach us of how people have done it in the past, of how time can change the way we look at things, how circumstances outside of the events themselves impact the way the events are talked about. And seeing how this changes from 1850 to 1920 as it gradually becomes familiar, familiar enough to be made fun of, and then familiar enough not to be made fun of anymore. And there's a couple of very minor anecdotes at the end of the book 
that I thought were really telling of the way that the Danish saints in World War II were very much involved in the defense of their country, in the resistance movement. There were some young boys in the town of Sirkeborg that were members of the church, kind of Danish Helmut Hübna figures, who gave their lives to defend their country against the Nazis. At the same time, there are saints in the town of Espia who see a visiting German Nazi soldier who is a member of the church, invite him to speak in their congregation, and he writes home to his family about how powerful that was for him to be accepted as a saint and a brother, despite the uniform he wore. And then he went to Russia and was never heard from again. So his family's last testament of him was of the power of the gospel to bring people together. You'll see more stories like that one in the book Danish But Not Lutheran, The Impact of Mormonism on Danish Cultural Identity, 1850 to 1920, by Julie K. Allen. Julie, I really appreciate talking to you about this book. Thanks for coming in today. Thank you so much. Thank you.